Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, quick note before the show. Keen-eyed subscribers amongst you will have noticed we are about to hit a milestone. The 100th episode of the media podcast. To celebrate, we'd like to invite you to a very, very special live show. It is our Media Quiz Spectacular. Yes, all your favourites will be in attendance. We'll toast the future of the podcast, network with fine media execs, and pit your knowledge against theirs. So, get Thursday the 19th of July in your diaries and start swatting. Sign up your team now at themediapodcast.com slash live. Hello and welcome to The Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Instagram raid YouTube territory, the end of all-white shortlists for BBC management, and is question time fit for purpose? Plus, our panel discussed the new BBC Sounds app, Google's foray into podcasting, and why The Guardians got into bed with the sun. And in the media quiz, we dive into Facebook's new magazine that's not a magazine to guess the missing word. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today is Rebecca Gilley, journalist at theweek.co.uk. Rebecca, we last saw each other at the Cheltenham Science Festival doing a live podcast. Yes, we did. Uh, the Week Unwrap's first ever live show. How was that for you? Um, I thought it was terrific. We were terrified that there would be nobody there because we've never done a live show before. So, you know, you look at the numbers of listeners you have, but you don't really believe that they're there. And physically seeing them there was amazing. Actual genuine fans of the genuine podcast fans. came, at the end, they? Well, we, our guest, as you know, was Radio 4 geneticist uh, Dr. Adam Rutherford. Um, we had a Q&A at the end and we were like, These, this is going to be all Rutherheads asking him questions about what it's like <laughs> to be a sexy scientist. Yeah. Uh, but the first question was for us and it was about like was. What, how we felt about past episodes of the podcast. Yeah. And Do you ever say anything on the show you don't like? Yeah, that's the it, power of podcasting, isn't it? <laughs> it was mind-blowing. I'm addicted. And also joining us this week, Matt Deegan of consultancy Folder Media. What's happening in Matt World at the moment? Uh, so we've been making the Love Island podcast, ah, yes. uh, which has been going very well. Number one podcast in the country, um, beating uh, things like the World Cup podcast uh, from the BBC, which is amazing. And they're annoyed, which is even better because they talk about it on their own podcast. Uh, but it's been really fun. Uh, to work on something connected to a massive show from ITV and get to see how 
all of that works. And also, I'm hoping this means more mainstream podcasts. Uh, and if you have a TV show, why don't you give us a call and we'll do one for you. <laughs> and I'm not a betting man, but if I were, who should I be putting my money on to win Love Island? Uh, well, Jack and Danny are the couple of choice at the moment who seem to be getting on very well. This Danny, daughter of Danny. Uh, Danny Dyer, daughter of Danny Dyer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But tonight, uh, so if you're listening, uh, so... Trying to think of the days. Probably yesterday. Yes, yesterday. <laughs> Twelve new um, uh, islanders went into Casaramore, oh. and we'll see what effect that has. Tune into the podcast to find out. Are you an islander, Rebecca? No, but um, I have to listen to people at work and mm. in my social life and everywhere else to talk about it. Not and who are the favourites in the office at the week? Um, I've heard a lot about Casa Amore this morning. Mm, right. um, Jamie, who works with me, seems to think that it's very clever because it's a pun. It means love, but also there are more of them. Aha, yes, very good. And Matt, I know what the real highlight of your week will be, and that is some exciting new proposals from Ofcom, commercial radio deregulation. Yes, yeah, so I think radio is probably the most regulated of the media mediums. Uh, and so what Ofcom are saying is if you're a local radio station that's happy to do local news every hour in daytime, mm-hmm. you now only have to do three hours of local programming from a region. And I think it's one of 11 regions in England. And um, so they're quite big regions. Uh, so that would mean something like Hart. Actually, there's eight regions in England. So something like Hart uh, now could have eight mid-morning shows in a different region, and then the whole rest could be networked from Leicester Square should they decide to do that. So that's quite a big shift from uh, a lot of smaller hearts doing local breakfast and drive. So yeah. it's, a big, it's a big shift. Also means no local content on the weekends too. So basically, if you're listening to this and you host a drive show for Heart... There's a good, you've got a 50 50 chance, haven't you, of getting onto your job, really? Well, I think for the radio groups, and you look at Global, they've, uh, some of their regional capital FMs, for example, the current rules mean they could network the whole lot, which they don't choose to do. Uh, I think it comes down to local sponsorship and promotions advertising. If that's strong in regions, they'll keep local shows. Uh, if it's not, I think they'll uh, merge areas together um, and uh, potentially reduce the amount of local programming. So okay. There's a bit of. Um, kind of let the market decide and the sort of the free market end of me says um, surely in today's world where we're challenged with all this kind of stuff you should be able to decide how you make your output and then the listeners decide whether they like it or not and the sort of radio-ness of me goes it's a bit of a shame that, um, that there isn't going to be the localness there used to be. Well and when all those stations were first networked the promise was made oh no it'll never happen that it'll be complete networks there'll never be true networks they're always going to be a local part of it that's why there was this provision. And the fear that was expressed by people who didn't want that at the time was, there has to be this provision. And then here we are, all their fears have been realised that the provision has been diluted. I don't think all their fears have been realised. No, not yet. No, but I think, but I think but again, as I said, um, they haven't gone as far as they could do in some areas. So I think it comes down to you decide what works well for, your, for the business. And ultimately, you know, some of it's going to come down to listeners as well and what they want. And if they want, if they are willing to get behind um, local talent and lobby for it, then I think this, you know, the stations are going to have to respond to that as well. Okay, sticking with sounds now, and the BBC have rebranded their radio player app as BBC Sounds. Meanwhile, Google have launched their first podcast app. Uh, What do these apps offer that weren't in the marketplace before? Uh, so uh, in Apple world, you've got an iPhone, uh, iTunes slash Apple podcasts, um, whether you kind of find it slightly annoying or not, has been the default place to go to read to listen to podcasts. 
button on all those devices, really easy entry into the podcast world. Um, something like about 60% of all podcast listening is through Apple Podcasts. Um, Android, which is a much bigger platform than, than iOS, hasn't really had its own uh, native podcast app, though there's lots of uh, ones like CastBox or Player FM that people use. Do you, do you have an Android phone? Uh, I do. What? What podcast app uh, do you so use? At the I moment? use Player FM. Player FM. Rebecca? I use Podcast Addict. Podcast Addict. Okay. So I have an iPhone now, but mm. I actually use Pocket Casts because yep. I once had an HTC and discovered it there and then realized it's better than the Apple native one. And so there are solutions. There are, but just as we've heard there, trying to explain that to listeners or how you can find my podcast yeah. is quite difficult. And also linking. Where should I link to if I'm a podcaster? So what um, Google have done is they've baked in podcasting into search. This is the thing that's slightly different. So so um, in Google search, if you search on a phone, uh, podcast will come up with play buttons. And if you hit any of those, it brings up a kind of native app mm. and you can start subscribing to things. They're trying to make it less uh, sort of reduce the friction in listening to podcasts and make it easier for people to link to them. And do you think that'll work, Rebecca? Because a lot gets talked about. It's the double tap, I think people call it, so that you subscribe to something mm. and then you press play when you choose to listen to a podcast. So you're making more of a commitment as a user. Do you think there is a marketplace for the casual kind of, oh, I was just Googling Donald Trump and, oh, here's a thing and I'll press play? Um, I, don't, I don't know that... I think that's going to have an effect maybe on people who already listen to podcasts. I don't think it's going to win new people over. But the great thing about podcasts on the iPhone was that it was built into the iPhone. It was already sort of communicated to users that's part of the experience of having a smartphone podcast or a thing look here's your podcast app whereas you know having to go and find and download one for an android phone means that it's less likely that someone's going to casually just become involved um the good thing about the about google's idea is that they're going to use their you know they already have an extraordinary knowledge of everything you do they're going to start recommending you podcasts based on your preferences and tastes and I think that is is a really good feature and I mean we know that they're great at knowing what you want so mm. I think we can trust them to suggest some good stuff. The other thing I think they're going to be doing is in effect transcribing all the podcasts that are uploaded and using that within search so when you do start to search for um, you know, niche words and phrases, it will pull out and link to points in podcasts. And that, I think, bring, to bring new people to, to podcasts and to expose things to uh, listeners, I think, uh, can only be good. And do we think that the future for this isn't just Android only? I mean, all the other Google products are available for iPhone as well. I use Google Maps on my iPhone, and I wonder how Apple will feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think um, it will it, it will be cross-platform. Um, the one thing things that's interesting about the app is if I'm playing it uh, on my phone and I get halfway through and pause it, and then I go home and I go to my Google Home, it mm. will pick up where I left off. So they're trying to make it um, to clarify Google Home being a device like, like rather than your second home. That you call <laughs> yes, your Google Don't Home. Don't you all? Don't we all? <laughs> I have my Google Home, I have my Siri Home. Uh, and my iOS Home, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, another, th another thing that I thought was interesting, actually, in what they've been saying so far, uh, what Google have been saying so far, rather, is that uh, they're going to... You've got to take it with a pinch of salt, because they haven't given many details, but they're going to invest in bringing more diverse voices uh, to the podcasting world. Um, and just, I think they said something like a quarter of the top podcasts were hosted by women, and then even fewer than that by people of colour. So they're going to be investing in that, which I think is a good thing, because I think podcasts started out a bit scrappy and survival of the fittesty, which does tend to privilege certain voices who can, you know, reach uh, reach a wider audience more easily. So I think this is good. 
to have that Google investment. And discoverability is still an issue, isn't it, for podcasts? Absolutely, it's it's the biggest it's the biggest issue uh, in in iOS where there is you know some form of curation in the form of the charts and you know what's on the homepage. Uh, but it's still a really small uh, amount, amount of podcasts that can be surfaced that way, uh, and it's easy to get trapped in that world and very hard to break through if you're not a media organisation. And as I said, it's not just Google that have launched a new thing this week. There's also the BBC's new mobile app. Tell us about that, Rebecca. Um, so the cool thing about this is that you'll be able to listen to, you'll be able to tune into radio programmes, you know, listen to past shows that have been on, podcasts, blah, blah, blah. But also they have... I think they said something in the region of 80,000 hours of archive audio, which is something that does definitely give it an edge over, you know, most other, you know, podcast providers um, in that you'll be able to go back. You know, if you go on iPlayer, you see they've got documentaries from the 1960s in there, like all that kind of vintage material that's so interesting. And I think that's definitely, I think, you know, BBC is going to struggle a little bit to make a name for itself as a podcast provider specifically but I think having that huge amount of archive audio will give it a little unique selling point except as yet Matt they've launched BBC Sounds without the crucial feature that makes it feel a bit like a podcast app when you're using iPlayer Radio which is the ability to download a program so you've got to remember that this is a phase one beta you know this BBC Sounds is going to replace iPlayer for radio um, but probably towards the end of the year Uh, so they're going to release more features I think downloads and Chromecast is the next feature that's going to be on there Uh, it's a very clean app Uh, there's uh, they've clearly tried to minimize the crud around (laughs) around it and make it a very easy listening experience Uh, but the other thing they're going to I believe they're going to add if you listen to things they've said over the past couple of years and and it's sort of hinted at in the little video that they've been using to promote it is adding music to it Mm. so there are some discussion there's been some discussions about uh, a sort of spotify-esque service for every song that has been played on the bbc in a month so i think that's you've got live radio you've got on demand and podcasts i think the third element is going to be um, easy access to a lot of the music archive and that becomes quite an interesting product the other thing they've been talking about uh, is whether uh, they can open sounds up to third parties uh, and other uk content to be listed in it you know they're making a play for this to be a podcast app i think really and for that to be successful i think they've got to allow um, third-party content in there and from that point of view rebecca do you think it's right that the strategy seems to be rather than and this might not be quite what it is now but what it's going to be rather than going in like you do on the radio player app through the radio 2 logo or what mm. happens to be live on six music right now you actually go in by you know clicking on a picture of jane garvey's face like it's, <laughs> it's all about the content it's not about which bbc brand it comes from yeah i think that they're definitely thinking a lot wider than you know than this, this just being a facet of you know the British Broadcasting Corporation providing more services but you know the BBC radio has always been more accessible you don't have to have a license and be in the UK to listen to the radio content so they've always had that kind of extra level of freedom they are obviously trying to reach a wider audience um, and I think like that's def- that's definitely a good thing because I think we've gone past the age where you can just think about this as like a, just another BBC product for for, for UK listeners. And there's some curatorial elements in it too. So sort of uh, playlists of uh, speech content, be they podcasts or or radio shows. So back to that discovery point earlier, uh, there is a desire to to do that. It's, It's quite thin at the moment, but there's clearly an ambition to do more of that. Okay, we do cover a lot of product launches on this show, and most of them you can kind of be like, "Eh, take that with a pinch of salt. But actually, it seems to be, you know, Google launching a podcast app, 
uh, the BBC effectively ditching the iPlayer brand for, for radio apps moving forward uh, seem like quite big news and this as well. Instagram have launched what is, in essence, an online TV channel. It's called IGTV, uh, and it's going to broadcast user-generated content alongside video from established brands. Uh, But that's not the whole story, Rebecca. This is about portrait view as well. (laughs) Yeah, uh, everyone's least favourite format for watching video, uh, portrait view. So there will be no landscape option in IGTV. Everything will be shot in portrait, which does raise the question of how brands are going to respond to that because everything is really going to be have to have to be custom made for Instagram because no one's going to want to watch it on any other platform like that um well Snapchat yeah Snapchat is obviously it's being a lot of people are saying that this is supposed to be their rival to YouTube but Snapchat's probably a better analogy because they are obviously thinking about it very much in terms of branding celebrities you know that kind of thing and you can currently have video on Instagram but it's limited to one minute this is going to be limited to an hour and you won't be able to record and upload directly through the app like you can at the moment for video. You're going to have to make the video beforehand and upload it. So it's obviously not intended for your, you know, scrappy street reportage. This is very much geared towards slicker output. Oh, so you actually can't film on your phone and then I've just press go? I've been understand from what I'm reading. Okay. That is interesting, isn't it, Matt? Because... Um Instagram's thing was always phone first. Mm, I mean, that's kind of how they made a name for themselves, was saying uh, back in the day, your iPhone camera is shit, but use our app and we'll Mm. put a nice filter on it. It was all designed for a mobile phone. So actually, this seems to be saying to professionals, edit something first, then upload it in portrait mode. It's a slight professionalization of the service. Uh, It is, though, looking at IGTV, what's been uploaded is people people have filmed longer form video on their phones and then just uploaded it from their phones. So you can still do that, but it's not the hold down the button and and record as I'm I'm talking to it. Uh, um, I think what's interesting is younger audiences are more than happy to watch vertical video. Uh, Instagram stories is a huge platform and takes a huge amount of time for, for, for young groups. So the idea of these being longer Instagram stories, really, I think works fine. Um, interestingly, back to Love Island on the podcast, um, Ken Ketanay, who was one of the winners from last year, uh, co-hosts the podcast, and he's on Instagram all the time. But he's a sort of featured provider of IGTV. So... Um, a pre-reality telly he was a hairdresser and so he's created a series called Kem's Cuts where he cuts someone's hair and interviews them it's about eight minutes long shot beautifully uh, and very much not a camera phone thing um, he's got a huge Instagram audience and him sort of spinning off his own little mini series I think is kind of fascinating and I think that's what Instagram have got in their heads though I think it will be shifted towards more UGC if people just recording slightly longer form stuff on their phones and whacking it up. Don't like the idea of getting my hair cut in eight minutes, though. (laughs) I think the haircut is longer, but the interview is shorter. Fine. Um, I guess with Facebook video and Instagram both being owned by Facebook, this could give Facebook an advantage over Google in video terms. I think Instagram is such a busy app and such a successful app uh, that through stories alone at the moment... That's a massive challenge to YouTube and create and YouTube being a platform for vloggers and creators. I think a lot of that's moving to Insta. And I think IGTV is the next stage of that. So I think they are way on the road to taking on YouTube. The, the, the main obstacle, it seems to me, is that they're really going to have to re-engineer user behavior as a short attention span millennial like on instagram i'd probably touch a screen every like half a second you know when you go through instagram stories you, you don't even watch to the end of each you know each clip you just 
tap, 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 tap. The idea of like, you know, I something was I read something about how now on IGTV they're sort of touting the fact that you can watch a National Geographic documentary. It's an hour long. <laughs> I just thought I can't imagine ever doing that. It's not where you go to watch how, something for an hour. My is attention it? span is not in that mode when I go on Instagram. So I think that kind of thing they're going to struggle with. But the kind of the shorter form clips. I think they could definitely give YouTube and Facebook a run for their money. I mean, I think what's interesting is they've, they've put it into a separate app. I mean, it's, that's surprising. Well, they've done both, haven't they? You can click the button on Instagram and well, there's a standalone app. It flips between the, the two apps, right. really. Okay. And so it flags it up in the main Instagram. And that's interesting. Like, There's no need for them to do that. And they're clear, there's clearly a reason that they sort of split it away and they're trying to make it a different product that is marketed from Instagram that picks up all your people you follow and that helps curate what you see. Do you um, think that reason might be that it might not work? It reminds me a bit of Twitter music. Yeah, no, I think I think it's more that they're trying to suggest that this is a different experience to the regular Instagram experience. But what I would say is Instagram uh, connection with audiences, particularly young ones uh, under 24, uh, is so strong. You know, it destroys Twitter. Uh, it's something that everyone's in. They're in a very good position to make this successful. Okay, let's stop talking about the kids and start talking about 79-year-old David Dimbleby, the uh, veteran presenter of Question Time, has announced he's stepping aside at the end of this year to return, he claims, to his first love, reporting. Uh, although I suspect he will take a holiday first <laughs> at that age. Uh, Rebecca, what do you make of Dimbleby's quarter century at the helm <laughs> of Question Time? Um, well, it's it's awful now, isn't it? I, I don't want to blame this on him. He, I mean, he's an excellent broadcaster and he really tries hard week in, week out. But it's just it's just become awful. I'm going to be honest, I haven't watched it regularly since the EU referendum. I just found my blood pressure was going through the roof constantly. I think the thing is, it's not Dimbleby's fault that it's kind of degraded to the point that it has but whoever takes over I think there's going to have to be kind of fresh look at how it works because at the moment it is just red-faced people shouting Matt the problem is that there's now a cast of professional trolls um, the sort of columnist extra that's always been around to some degree uh, but now people have worked out that they can make that their career spouting and of course they want to be on question time they tend to be right wing so the BBC panic and like we need some more um, balanced people and so you get professional trolls on and it's not a decent discussion program. I mean, the reason for that though arguably isn't actually anything to do with the media industry it's uh, political yeah. the reason that you have these columnists filling up the panel now is because since the coalition basically uh, government ministers didn't want to come on yeah, perhaps for the understandable reason that when you had the Tories and the Lib Dems, they were disagreeing with each other and they didn't want to do that publicly. So you've ended up with backbenchers, slightly crap quality politicians mm. going on. Well, and so they have to make it exciting by having Melanie Phillips or Katie Hopkins, mm. don't This they? is the thing. It's, it's just a vicious circle now where the audience go, they want to voice their you know, opinions to big, big politicians. They don't get any, so they get angrier. And then no, you know, no cabinet minister, no prime minister worth their salt is ever going to submit to the circus are they okay fine so we we don't like question time now okay but to return to my original question david dimbleby 25 years how do you rate his performance matt great you know it's fine good job service to the nation done yeah well done has he been there a bit too long maybe should have gone five years before probably but then politics changed you know in a way that it felt i think if i was him that's not the t- he probably wanted to leave before the coalition <laughs> been and then that happened in servitude <laughs> and then he wanted to leave before the Brexit referendum you've got to mm. see that through then Trump happened it's like <laughs> I'm not going anywhere free Melania <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, who should replace him it'll be Kirsty Walk I reckon oh 
Well, I was just going to say, Samira Ahmed threw her, her hat into the mm. ring almost immediately. She would be good too. In an excellent, an excellent Twitter thread where she said, I'm qualified and I'd like to be considered and I think I shouldn't have to come forward and say it like this, but here it is. Mm. And she um, definitely will be considered now. She said yeah, that. she will be now. <laughs> I did notice that on the BBC's own article on their website about who might replace Dimbleby, the photo was of Kirsty Walk. Uh, <laughs> so that does seem to be a favourite. Although like every other job presenting at the BBC, I presume Emma Barnett and Amal Rajan will both be considered. <laughs> as well. We'll be back with more news in brief after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You never know when you might need a friendly production house to edit a TV show or perhaps record a podcast. Run VT is the central London production house that the media podcast is proud to call home. With 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theatre, a dubbing suite and a voiceover booth, there's everything you could need to edit your next show. Uh, Plus, they've just reopened the pub around the corner. To find out what Run VT can do for you, go to runvt.tv now. Time for some media news in brief now. Rebecca and Matt are still with me, and all white shortlists for senior jobs are going to be a thing of the past at the BBC. This is part of a widespread plan to broaden staff diversity. Matt, is this the right idea? Doesn't this get announced every six months? I've never seen it to such a senior level. Management interviews will have to include a non-white candidate. I've never seen a firm didactic issue like that. But yes, there do seem to be a lot of diverse uh, plans within the BBC announced regularly. Yes, clearly it's all a, it's a good idea to try and drive forward to a point where the where organisations are more representative of the public they serve than they are at the moment. Um, but so should we have to do it? Of course not. It should be entirely based on um, people's uh, skills and all of those sorts of things. But guess what? That doesn't work. This is the thing, isn't it? So it's shocking, isn't it, Rebecca, when you look at photos of the BBC's, I think, 96 top senior <laughs> managers and they're all white. 
That obviously seems wrong and doesn't reflect the country. Yeah. However, you see this debate, don't you, within Oxbridge Colleges as well. Mm. People say, well, there isn't the BAME representation there should be yeah. amongst the top universities. And there isn't, but the universities say, well, we don't want to dilute the quality of our interview process if the candidates mm. aren't coming forward, that the problem lies with the school system and yeah. societal problems. You could say the same thing if you want to invest in BAME in the media, put it into apprenticeships and support and whatever lower down the scale, not at management level. You don't want to be the token candidate. Yes, but they want to have a, a different looking management photo, I think, is the is the issue. You know, They want a few non-white faces up front and centre that can be, you know, can appear on points of view and talk about how much power they have. Um, but as you say, it's actually a, the first thing it made me think of was the Oxbridge debate. You need to have a talent pool to draw on from lower down the ranks if you want to have a more diverse management. I mean, that's, you know, that's just common sense. So I think really this it needs to be imposed lower down to have a serious impact. Um, otherwise, they're just it's just going to be a case of the BBC trying to poach people of colour from other organisations to be management within the BBC. I think there is a representation argument as well in that uh, you have to see people like you um, to to think, I could do this. Mm. And I think that is that is important. And that I think, cuts across life uh, in general and for the media, which is more front and centre. It is important that uh, everyone sees people like them uh, to so that they think, I could do this and I should should work hard and... This, this would be what could happen. But it does seem like that if you're going to have positive discrimination, you should apply it across the board, not just for management. I mean, management positions, as I say, seems like the problematic area, to put it, rather than everywhere I, else. I think it's, a, it's clearly still an issue across the whole organisation, but I think it is less of an issue uh, lower down. Um, let's talk about representation of women as well, because there's an interesting uh, article this week, Rebecca, showing that researchers in the US had proven that women journalists get heard less on Twitter than their male counterparts. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a classic voice of authority issue. Who do you expect to get your political news from? It's it, you know, it's the same reason that they there was pushback in the early days of women news readers. You know, the, the idea was that men didn't want to hear the serious, important news from a woman because they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't take it seriously. But actually, this does seem to prove that men don't want to hear the serious news from a woman. I mean, it's not yeah, just exactly. a case of it's not an inbuilt prejudice. I mean, they weren't. I mean, they weren't wrong at the time. But I think we've evolved to the point now that when you switch the news on and see a female newsreader you don't start tuning out or expecting them to talk about you know fluffy kittens so I think there's definitely room for evolution on this but but why on a democratic platform are female journalists not getting the same traction as male journalists because in democratic platforms women have constantly got the short end of the stick anyway it comes back to this thing of you know when you have a not survival of the fittest but you know if you have an open platform men always have tended to dominate it even mm. when there's no there's theoretically no reason that women shouldn't have an equal say it tends to pan out in that way anyway which is why we often have to see kind of artificial intervention to ensure more parity a bit difficult to see how we can do that on twitter i think also women get a disproportionately hard time uh, on that platform uh, which mm. surely is going to encourage them to interact and post and behave differently uh, which I think makes it easier for men who don't have the same issues uh, to sort of carry on and that and that was really borne out in in that report as well because they found that not only were the female reporters retweeted less and interacted with less they actually tweeted less mm. overall than their male counterparts as well mm. which is probably to do with the, the kind of backlash that high-profile women do get on Twitter and there is a link that I can't remember the name of and maybe you can go in the show notes where you can 
audit your account, your Twitter account, and it will show what percentage male and female who you follow is. Oh, okay. I thought it was going to say what percentage male and female you retweet, because that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? That would be interesting. Because like, a lot of this is about other journalists tweeting each other. So part of the study, they looked into the Beltway journalists, which is the ones who have admission to the White House, mm. and they found that the male journalists were retweeting each other more than they were their female counterparts, even though there's, I think, almost as many female journalists in that press pack as men. That, I presume, in most cases, is genuinely unconscious. You know, most political journalists would never say publicly, oh, I prefer reading the commentary of other men. Mm. And yet they are retweeting the male voices more. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a totally superficial bias because when you're reading their tweets or their articles you're not you know they're not reading it to you in their own voice or in person in front of you it literally is just the most superficial bias and also why would you need to follow anybody except for Maggie Haberman if you're following the White House and finally in our diversity roundup Rebecca uh, tell us about strong black lead Oh, so Strong Black Lead is this amazing video that Netflix has put out. They've got together all of the black stars of the various Netflix originals um, and they basically reenacted a photo called A Great Day in Harlem in the 1950s which brought together uh, dozens of prominent jazz musicians and they're all kind of lined up on a stoop of a house and then on the street outside. So they've recreated that with um, black stars of Netflix originals. Um, it's got a very powerful voiceover, you know, the basic message being that Netflix is supporting diverse actors and sort of going up against the idea that the reason there aren't more uh, women and people of colour leading movies and TV shows is that they're just not there or it's too hard. If you remember casting the live-action Aladdin, this saga that we kept hearing about how they couldn't couldn't find any Middle Eastern actors who could sing and dance and act, which obviously was ridiculous. So it's kind of fighting it back against that. Um, It looks fantastic. And I think the thing that stood out to me, the voiceover is done by Caleb McLaughlin, who is uh, one of the kids in Stranger Things. And the voiceover specifically mentions blackness. It's not namby-pamby language about diversity and we've all got stories to share. You know, they called out the fact that it's about blackness, different ways to be black, and that gave the impression that Netflix is really about engaging with different communities and telling their stories, not just paying lip service. thing is, it is a very kind of trendy, zeitgeisty thing at the moment, though, isn't it? Oscars so white and all of that. That's the context at which Netflix have put this out. So, yes, they are reflecting their audience and, yes, they are championing black voices, but also... They've made this uh, little film map because it's quite a cool thing to do in Hollywood at the moment. Sure. I mean, I think there's a positioning angle as well, yeah. uh, particularly against existing networks. And it plays into what Netflix are trying to describe, which is their, the new form of television. But America have always been much better, actually, at reflecting diverse voices, haven't they? Because everything's commercial, everything's based on getting an audience. Yes, and we have heard, you know, for decades you've been hearing now about British actors moving to Hollywood Mm. to, you know, get more of a chance um, at good roles. But I also think that um, black-led programmes have always been very marginalised and kind of pigeonholed into, you know, this is black TV there's been crossovers, obviously, Cosby Show, if you think going back, like, that was a big crossover hit. But then if you think about all the stuff like, you know, like uh, like Moesha, Sister, Sister, there was always those programmes that were, you know, really heavily characterised as black. Mm. And I think Netflix has definitely made a big step in saying these shows are for everyone. But they can still retain elements of blackness or, you know, Asianness. They can be about women, but they are still intended for a diverse audience. Let's talk about advertising. Uh, And this is an intriguing development. A one-stop shop to buy digital ads, which is going to let brands buy space at The Guardian, The Sun and The Telegraph all at the same time. Uh, Matt, tell us about this. 
so the newspapers have seen uh, Facebook and uh, Google just steal all the advertising. Uh, a lot of them have run ad networks on their websites where programmatically bought advertising uh, happens, but people are buying things that aren't necessarily connected to uh, the locations, i.e. the media titles. It's more they're buying demographics or retargeting, all those sorts of things. So all those places have always had their own sales teams that have sold premium advertising uh, around their their products. Uh, But they think there's a kind of a middle way somewhere that's not quite programmatic and not have to just be their own sales team. So they're pooling some of their inventory and basically saying, why not put your display ads uh, next to high quality journalism that we all make um, and uh, we've created a joint venture that will allow you to do that. I think good luck would be my um, my suggestion. The Sun, I mean, the, the Sun and the Guardian, yeah, I suppose fast-moving consumer goods, maybe advertising both and see it as a, as, a, as a quality place to put their material. There is a concern about, um, you know, programmatic ads going on bad websites or across mm. um, poor quality content. I think it's probably less of an issue for most digital advertisers. And I'm, I think you could probably cope with quality rules within your programmatic platform rather than go, oh, let's put some spend uh, in this new entity. I think it's a good idea. What do you think, Rebecca? Well, I've been racking my brains to think, what product can you put across The Sun, The Guardian and The Telegraph? And the only thing I can think of is Mary Berry. (laughs) That's the only thing I can think of that readers of all three of those websites would be like, yes, I will click through. But, well, I suppose all three of them, though, are selling strong opinion, aren't they? Strong opinion based on fact. That's the thing. I mean, they're very different opinions. Mm. But if you've got a, a product that it's about personality, but you don't want it ending up next to some far-right extremist YouTube yeah. video, that's the way to make sure well, that you've got a broad sweep of opinion and your piece next to it. Yes, and The Guardian, at least, has gone to great pains to say there's going to be no editorial crossover, You know, there's, they're not going to be working together in any other respect, and readers of those papers will probably think... The, gosh, this, you know, how is this going to, like, how will this work? These are all different, such different papers. But if you're an advertiser, you look at that and you just see demographics. You don't look at it. If you're a passionate Guardian reader, you're like, I've got nothing in common with a Telegraph reader. If you're an advertiser looking at that, you're like, wealthy middle class people, this is very easy to advertise mm. to all of them at the same time. Mm. And also, if, if you want to reach Guardian audiences or, or style audiences um, through programmatic networks, you can do that. You know, you could look at people who visit that website and then retarget them across it's still premium sites. It's not like going on random blogs or whatever. You know, you set your rules yourself. So the other thing is display advertising is the crappier end of digital advertising. Yes. Uh, and what everyone wants to sell anyway is more high quality um, integrations that yes. get them a premium rate, which a central body is going to find difficult to sell yes. because that comp is not going to run across the sun and the telegraph. So... You might, okay, you sort of think they might as well try and band together to provide some scale to try and get some pennies away from, from Google and Facebook, but it's is, not going to change their, their models. Is it an acknowledgement, though, as well, that that sort of sponsored content news story bar that you see at the bottom of those websites currently is terrible? I mean, it's, it's detrimental, isn't it, to what the general public think of as the quality of the journalism they see on that website. I mean, I get lured in by Dragon's Den stuff, right? So I'm a big fan of Dragon's Den. Obviously, my cookies tell these websites that I am. And so I'll be reading something on The Guardian about Theresa May, something completely unrelated. And then in the related stories, sponsored stories, clickbait, bullshit bar, 
there'll be a, a literally a fake news story about Dragon's Den is being cancelled and here's why. And of course, I click it because I'm like, no, don't cancel Dragon's Den. And I get taken to a fake news website from The Guardian. It is, I know because I work in the media what's going on, mm. but it is detrimental to the quality of that brand providing this, quality journalism. You're talking about Tabula and Outbrain. All those kind things. Of churn. Yeah. Yeah. They shouldn't be on The Guardian and The Telegraph. And but the they site. are worth literally hundreds of millions of pounds. It's it's completely insane. The, the thing being that all forms of, of advertising that you see on news sites, they're all awful. And they're increasingly unprofitable. So it's it's reaching a situation where readers hate them. Organisations aren't making as much out of them as they used to. And it's just this is just another example of that ongoing search for something that will make publishers tons of money without repulsing customers. But it would be good, wouldn't it, if, if this replaced that? Uh, it would be. It would be worse if it well, adds to that. It would be good. It would be good if the quality of advertising was better on media platforms, and that's the same for everything: radio, telly, you know, better ads, um, make it a, a nicer experience for, mm. for consumers. The problem is that those clickbaity ads that work for you as you click on that Dragon's Den article mm. means that ends up being a. 50p a click high value uh, proposition and they look the other way and go oh, let's whack another 16 unit piece at the bottom of uh, every page mm. i think what's the, the only true model that will shift is something you know the guardian are doing around donations and subscriptions that's making a meaningful impact to, to, to their bottom line that's at the point in which the click-through rate of that give us two pound a month uh is over what those Taboola ads do, well, that's when Taboola's dead, isn't it? Mm. Let's hope so. Uh, talking of quality journalism, the Observer's Carol Cadwalla has been awarded the Orwell Prize for Journalism for her work, of course, on Cambridge Analytica and data harvesting. Uh, Rebecca, remind us of her work. This was the Observer's expose into the role that Cambridge Analytica had over the US elections and basically the role of playing into the whole Trump-Russia investigation and the Facebook data harvesting. It basically touched on all of these things and it ended with like really world-changing mm. consequences. Yeah, um, with Mark Zuckerberg before... Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg appearing before the Senate, appearing yeah. before EU, uh, MEPs. Um, so a good choice for the prize? A terrific, a terrific choice for the prize. It's such a var- I mean, even trying. To, I mean, I've read it, and even trying to summarise it, then I was just saying buzzwords about Trump, Russia, etc. Because it's such a vast, complicated story, but it was presented in a way that people did understand the impact of it and the significance. So the amount of people who have left Facebook or who, at the bare minimum, are far more aware of Facebook and data harvesting. Um, since that story broke, it has definitely had a tangible impact, not just on the, you know, the world of people who are, you know, already sort of into the news and interested in this kind of thing, but also the average person. And Matt, she investigated it for a number of years, despite indifference, really, from the public. You know, the, the, the wisdom would have been editorially, yeah, the public know that Facebook have their data and they don't care. So why are you looking into it? Uh, absolutely. And that's the, the mark of a great journalist who keeps... Um keeps going at it Uh, and it had a massive impact you know that organization doesn't really exist anymore and rebecca carroll's uh, source christopher wiley responded by tweeting this is why we need more women in journalism i mean that was a bit yeah i i feel like that was a bit of an attempt to jump on a jump on the zeitgeist Uh, it does maybe actually inadvertently betray something about him though doesn't it i mean maybe this is one of the ways she did manage to get his confidence is is that he spoke to her because she was 
a woman. I mean, that's that's something that doesn't get talked about much, you know, that dynamic between men and women. Yeah, it's true. And it is an area of, you know, the the, the kind of techie, datary side of journalism mm. is a side where women are underrepresented, you know, compared to, say, your more human interesty type stories. So perhaps there was an element of a wolf in sheep's clothing going on that guys who were involved in this, and it's all, you know, Cambridge Analytica, all the top guys have been seem to have been men. Mm-hmm. Um perhaps they were more willing to inadvertently open themselves up um, to a female journalist. But I think, I think that was a bit of a stretch. Right, there is just time for the feature that's not going to win any Orwell Prizes anytime soon. It is our media quiz. Woo. Woo. This week, it is the Missing Words game. Now, uh, Grow is a new publication. It's definitely not a magazine. Facebook are not a publisher for business leaders from Facebook. It is printed on paper, uh, and it is available in the first-class lounges at Heathrow. So I'm guessing neither of you have seen it. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Uh, That'll be yes. Uh, And it's on Facebook as well, naturally. Uh, Although if you search for Grow Magazine on Facebook, by the way, you do get a US-based guide to cannabis horticulture. Uh, Anyway, uh, back to the quiz. I'll give you a headline from Grow Magazine with a word missing. You just have to tell me what that word is. Uh, So you buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Rebecca, you will say... Rebecca. And Matt, you'll say... Matt. Fastest voice box first. Let's go. What is the missing word in these headlines? Recipe for the perfect what? Matt. Matt. Startup. Very close. It's disruptor. Uh. Oh, I was going to guess disruptor. <laughs> They're always disruptor. They, they love a disruptor in Silicon Valley. Uh, some of the ingredients cited by the interviewees in that article were rigour, clarity, passion and grit. And also Facebook ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crucially, <laughs> Facebook ads. Uh, okay, what is the missing word in this headline? The what whisperer? Rebecca. Rebecca. Millennial. Yes, uh, that was a profile of H&M's Oscar Olsen sharing his strategy for a new brand. And uh, what's his job title? It's Disruptor in Chief. Is uh, it? Oh, yes. That's now Jeez. a thing. Wow. Uh, okay, and uh, Matt, this is your chance to draw. The Middle East is having a what moment? Matt, <laughs> yeah, start up. Yeah. <laughs> Again, close, uh, but no, it's tech. Uh, the Middle East is having a tech moment. It was an interview in Grow Magazine, which isn't a magazine, with tech startup founder Linda Rottenberg on working with new tech companies in the Middle East. That means with one point, the winner yes. is Rebecca. Congratulations. <laughs> You're the disruptor here. Well done. That was a lot of fun. I think we can all agree. Uh, And therefore, surely a great advert for the Media Quiz Live. Uh, Are you coming? Um, I actually can't come because it's (laughs) two days before my wedding. Uh, Excuses. Matt, are you coming? I will be there. There you are. A chance to meet Matt Deegan, everybody. (laughs) Exmouth Market, 19th of July. Is there a radio regulation round? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see if we can make that happen. Uh, Tickets at themediapodcast.com slash live. Uh, Rebecca, are there tickets for your wedding available there as well on Eventbrite? Or um, I'm going to have to say no. Oh, actually, that'd be a good way to recoup some of the costs. So <laughs> yeah. yes, that that's what a disruptor One, would yes. do. Get in touch with Grow Magazine. One thousand pounds per person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is it for today. Uh, thanks to our guests, quiz winner Rebecca Gilly and Matt Deegan. Uh, Today's episode is dedicated to JP Waiting, one of the subscribers who, with just a small donation, keeps this podcast going. JP doesn't even work in the media, but spends more on podcasts each month than on Netflix. 
imagine. JP, you are a podcaster's dream. Thank you, JP. Uh, you can get an episode of The Media Podcast dedicated to you or your mum or whoever you like by visiting themediapodcast.com slash donate and choosing a voluntary subscription that suits you. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry, The Media Podcast, a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.